Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that as we explore this passage of scripture together this morning, that you would speak into our hearts by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see you and our ears to hear what you want to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are diving into the middle of the second half of a passage of scripture that appears in a very similar form in three out of the four Gospels in Matthew, Mark and Luke. The context is just a few days before Jesus' death. He is in Jerusalem with his disciples and he's just gone up on the Mount of Olives where he is sitting and looking across to the temple in, in Jerusalem. Now, I know some of us have been there together on church pilgrimage trips. Some of you, I'm sure, will have been independently as well. And you can visualize the scene on the Mount of Olives where you look across to see the temple. And this is a complicated chapter. You probably got that sense as Michael read it. And there, in the whole chapter as a whole, there are two big ideas that swirl around and are linked together. First, as Jesus sits and looks across at the temple, he prophesies that that temple will soon be torn down and desecrated. And that prophecy was fulfilled when Jerusalem and the temple were completely destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. That's the first idea. The second big idea in the chapter is that Jesus himself will one day return. He uses the term son of man to describe himself. And this is what Christians call the second coming. And those two big ideas are like two lenses through which to read this chapter of scripture. And we're going to need to bear both of those ideas in mind as we look at this together. Now, I wonder how many of you wear very focal glasses. I got these a couple of years ago now. It made me feel like I'm getting a little bit older. But they work really well. If I want to look at something far away, I can look through the distance bit and I can read it really clearly far away. If I want to look at something close up, I look down through the bottom bit. And that works really well. What doesn't work so well is if I try and do it the other way around. Took me a little bit of time to get used to them, but I got there in the end. And just like a pair of very focal glasses, we're going to need to know which lens we are looking through as we make our way through this passage. We read the second half of the chapter, and that's what we're going to focus on. And this is mainly about the second of those big ideas, Jesus' return. But there will be little hints of the first idea, the destruction of the temple, in there as well. So please keep both in mind. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever heard a sermon on the second coming before. You won't have heard it from me, because I've certainly never preached one. But as we enter this Advent season today, we're encouraged to look ahead not only to Jesus' first coming at Christmas, we remember that, but also to prepare and look ahead to his return. So we're going to start by exploring what this passage tells us about the second coming and also what we don't know before then finally considering what this means for us and how we can be prepared for his return. So what can we know with confidence about Jesus' second coming? 
Well, firstly, we can know that it is going to happen. Verse 26 says this. At that time, people will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Jesus is going to return. If you remember one thing, make it that. And yes, I know he said that over 2,000 years ago. It's an awfully long time ago. But have any of Jesus' other promises failed to come true? He said he would die. He said he would rise again. He said he would send the Holy Spirit. He said the temple would be destroyed. He said his disciples would be sent out to witness to him to the ends of the earth. Everything else has happened just as he said it would. So let's not doubt this promise either. The second thing we can know is that when he returns, he will gather up all those who know and love him to be with him forever. Verse 27 of our passage tells us that. But I'd like to read a couple of verses from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, because we get a little bit more detail of what that will look like. That says this, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So all those who have died in Christ, who knew and loved him in their earthly lives, will be raised up. And those who are still alive when he returns will then join with them. And we will all be with Jesus forever. And that's a wonderful image to hold in our minds as we look forward to his return. But back in our Mark passage... We might have got a little bit caught up on the way Jesus describes what this will look like, particularly because he uses the word elect. Verse 27 says this, And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. I mean, basically it's saying the same as what I read from 1 Thessalonians, that those who know and love Jesus will be taken to be with him forever. But we might find the term elect difficult. Who is elect? How do I know if I'm in or I'm out? And what about my friend or family member who doesn't seem to believe in Jesus? And we will naturally have a lot of questions about this. And I feel like maybe I'm opening a can of worms that I don't have time to address in detail. Happy to chat a little bit more at the end if that's helpful. But for now, I'd like to just suggest that we shift our focus a bit onto what we can be sure of as we consider that idea. First, for ourselves, have we in our own hearts chosen to follow Jesus? Have we said yes to his invitation to trust him and accept his death on the cross for us? If so, then we are in him and we can be confident in that. Second, are we doing all we can to share the gospel message with others? I'd like us to turn together to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is on page 1224. And if you're holding a Bible, do turn to it and keep a finger in it because I'm going to be back in that chapter quite a lot. But 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 on page 1224. The second half of that verse says this. 
God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So as we think about that term elect, and we might have lots of questions, but I want you to hold on to the fact that that invitation to be part of God's elect is open to everyone. Sadly, God knows that not everyone will say yes, and we know that too. But our focus is not on that. Our role is simply to share God's love with those around us because he longs for everyone to come to know him. So we can be sure that Jesus will return and he will gather up all his people to be with him forever. But there are also things we need to accept that we will never know. And the main one of those is the timing of when this will all happen. So back in Mark 13, verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Get that? Not even Jesus knows when he's going to come back. Only God the Father knows. That's quite incredible, really, if you think about it, isn't it? And we are not meant to spend lots of time and energy trying to figure out dates and times. That's what all the, a lot of sects and cults do that. And let's face it, every time someone has made a prediction of when Jesus is going to return, so far, they have all been proved wrong. But I'd like to say a little bit more on that, because verses 28 to 31 in Mark 13 seem to be saying that there will be signs that indicate the time is drawing near. Jesus uses a fig tree as an illustration of how the leaves of the tree change with the seasons. We know this from our own gardens, don't we? We can know that summer is coming, seems an awfully long way off at the moment, when, when the leaves on the tree start to sprout. And similarly, in these verses, Jesus uses the term these things, which will indicate that a new season is drawing near. What are these things, I hear you ask? Well, the whole of the first half of Mark 13, which we didn't read, has been describing various signs like wars, earthquakes, persecution, false prophets, and those are the these things that Jesus is referring back to. However, remember my very focal glasses? This is where we're going to need to adjust our focus slightly. Because most commentators agree that these things were signs that took place in the run-up to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70. And that would certainly make sense of Jesus' reference in verse 30 when he says, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Otherwise, that's a bit difficult, that, isn't it? Most of those who were still alive at the time when Jesus was on earth in about AD 30 would have still been alive in AD 70, it's only a 40-year gap, when the temple was destroyed. So the point is not to look at the world around us and try and somehow make a detailed link between all the tragedy, the natural disasters and the wars that we see so frequently to infer that therefore Jesus' return is drawing near and it's going to happen on this date or that date because we're never going to know precisely when it will take place. However, in a more general sense, these things 
are described in verse 8 as the beginning of birth pains. And so we can, in a sense, switch back to our distance lens at this point. Because the period between Jesus' first coming, when he lived on earth, died and rose again, and his second coming, when he will return, that's a period in which we now live and have everyone in the last 2,000 years has been living in that period. That period is called the end times or the last days. And that is the season we are now in. And so in a general sense, we can look at the world around us and say, yes, we do see signs that we are in this season, like the leaves shooting on the fig tree. We are in the last days. And so we should not be surprised at the turmoil in the world around us because it has been and will continue to be a feature of this season. Jesus will return in due course when the season draws to its close. But as I've said a number of times, the date and time is known only to God. Let me go back to 2 Peter 3 again. You may still have a finger in it. And I'm going to read verses 8 and 9 this time. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's time is not our time. A thousand years of our time is just like a day to God. Imagine that Jesus lived two days ago. Let's not spend any more time on thinking when this might happen because we are just invited to live by faith and trust God's promise that when his time is right, that promise will be fulfilled. So what does all of this mean for us this Advent Sunday? I said at the beginning that Advent is a time when we're encouraged to get ready not only for Christmas, but for Jesus' return. But how exactly are we meant to do that? Let's look together at verse 33 of Mark 13. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Verse 35 continues, Therefore keep watch. And jumping down to verse 37, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. I don't think it takes a genius to work out that Jesus wants us to keep watch. I mean, he says it three times in as many verses. I think we can kind of get that that's the point. But what does it mean? Well, for me, this idea of keeping watch makes me think of my little dog, Eli. He's a fairly new rescue dog. I've told quite a lot of you quite a lot about him already. He is a, a 10-year-old Westie Cross, so we've had him for about three or four months. And some of you know that we've been working quite hard to get him comfortable with the idea of being left home alone, because that's been a bit of a challenge. We have invested in a video monitoring app. So I can set up my iPad in the kitchen, and I can go out of the front door with my phone and watch a video on my phone of how Eli is coping home alone. And he is an absolute model of what keeping watch looks like. His little nose is pressed up against the baby gate across the kitchen door. His eyes are on the front door where he saw me leave from. 
And even if he does lie down and close his eyes, he's never really off watch. Because if there's even a slight shadow across the front door, like a car drives past or a bird flies past, he immediately picks his head up again and he's back on high alert. I know that he's never going to switch off. He's never going to go to sleep and lose focus because he has no idea when I'm going to return. And so his entire being is focused on keeping watch. So he doesn't miss the chance to greet me with a wagging tail and lots of excitement spinning around in circles and bringing me his favourite toy as soon as I walk back in through the front door. So how could we be more like my little dog, Eli, as we keep watch for Jesus' return? Let's go back again to 2 Peter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, this is talking about when Jesus comes back, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And jumping to verse 14, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. That's what keeping watch looks like. So could you, this Advent, set aside some time amidst the busyness to pause and reflect on your life, to honestly look back over the past weeks and months and identify some times where maybe you've not lived in that holy and godly way and come to God in repentance, to recommit yourself for the coming year, to put in place practices such as Bible reading, prayer, fellowship with others at church, at connections, or in a small group, to reflect on the choices you make in using your time, talents, and money, and ask yourself whether your motivation and heart in these things is in line with God's call to keep watch and be ready for his return. And to remember, as we read earlier from 2 Peter, God is patient with us and longs for everyone to come and to know him. So how could you make the most of opportunities around you to share the good news of the gospel with those in your life and to pray for them to come to know God for themselves? So as I finish, I invite you, perhaps literally, but certainly metaphorically, to put on your own pair of fairy focals this Advent. Let's not only look through the close-up lens, of getting ready for Christmas and all that means. But let's also look through the distance lens of getting ready for Jesus' return. Let's be assured that he will come again without getting caught up on the details of when. And let's be ready, keeping watch and using the opportunity of this Advent to be ready for his return. Amen. Amen.